Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-hosts, LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher, and LARB's gender and sexuality editor, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Kate. Hi. And this week, we're speaking with Arundhati Roy about her new collection, Azadi, Freedom, Fascism, Fiction. And I wasn't on this interview, unfortunately. I had to um, miss it because of the the time difference. So what did you guys talk about? So we actually talked to Arundhati early this morning, LA time, which was late her time. She's She lives in Delhi in India. We talked about the collection and the collection really, as you can tell from the subtitle, Freedom, Fascism, Fiction, really focuses on the political issues and the rise of um, what Arundhati sees as a fascistic government in India and also around the world. So we talked about that. It's a very uplifting conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I should, I should say that it's like the, the book is kind of rehearsing an incredibly dark time and obviously very recent up to the minute history in India, right. With Narendra Modi. And as Dea was saying, the fascistic government um, that he's been leading. And then also obviously with, serious parallels to the rise of totalitarian regimes across the the world and uh, in many ways in, in our own country. But, you know, despite all of that doom and gloom, I do want, I don't want readers and listeners to tune out. She ends with a really uplifting and quite powerful statement about resistance at the end and kind of how we move forward from here. Yeah. Well, I could use that this week, so I'm, I'm excited. I think we all could for sure. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so let's listen to the interview. Let's okay. do it. Today we are joined by writer, novelist, and activist Arundhati Roy, who is kind enough to be calling in from Delhi. Arundhati is the author of the novel God of Small Things, which won the Man Booker in 1997, and more recently, The Ministry of Utmost Happiness, which was long listed for the Man Booker in 2017. She has also published a number of nonfiction books, as well as essay collections dedicated to her advocacy work and the many political causes that she has taken up in her life, like Indian nationalism, nuclear proliferation, and the current political administration in India. Her latest collection of essays is called Azadi, Freedom, Fascism, Fiction. Thank you so much, Arundhati, for joining us. It's my pleasure, Medea. Arundhati is just a kind of way of opening this up. You know, so much of the book, which we should say is a collection of kind of essays and lectures that you've been giving in the past two years, um, does kind of center on the crisis in India right now, which I think, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, I think is actually a Hard to say that anything in India is a microcosm because of the sheer size <laughs> of the country, but it is kind of indicative of, of larger patterns of the rise of totalitarianism, the reemergence of fascism in the present. But I'm wondering if for our listeners, you could just kind of sketch what India has gone through as a country since Narendra Modi uh, came to power. And then also, if you can talk a little bit about the conflict in Kashmir in the present that, you know, is, is also so central to many of the arguments and alarm bells that you're ringing in the book. Well, that's a very difficult task for me. I know, yes, I'm one, sorry. <laughs> one gets sort of bogged down in, in the detail of 
and the violence of life around us right now, but let me just try. Let's say to people who know nothing about India, uh, colonialism ended in 1947. And uh, at that time, India as we know it, uh, was more a continent than a country, and it consisted of many British, uh, you know, British-ruled provinces, but also hundreds, more than 500 princely kingdoms, of which uh, Kashmir, Jammu and Kashmir, was one. And independence came along with partition, where the subcontinent was partitioned into India and Pakistan, and then subsequently Pakistan was partitioned into East Pakistan, West Pakistan, which is East Pakistan, now Bangladesh. And all of this uh, entailed a convulsion of violence and uh, one of the largest sort of movements of human human populations across borders. Uh, more than a million people were killed. And since 1947 to about 1990, India, in our constitution call itself a secular socialist republic. It's a country where there are hundreds of languages, uh, all sorts of uh, religious and ethnic communities. Even though the Muslims consist of about 15%, it's still for a long time the largest Muslim population in the world because of the numbers. In 1990, after the Soviet Union collapsed and the, the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan ended and the world became a unipolar world. India aligned itself with the US and declared itself a free market. So since the 1990s, there's been a massive change and a massive violent change. In a way, two kinds of totalitarianisms were released. You know, One was a kind of economic totalitarian free market vision. And the other was this idea that was brought in by the current government. For example, Modi and all the almost all his ministers belong to an organization called the RSS, which was set up in 1925. Uh, but its ideologues openly admire Hitler, uh, admire Mussolini, have referred to the Muslims of India as the Jews of Germany. Modi himself uh, was part of that organization, I think, ever since he was a sentient adult. And since then, these two forms of totalitarianism, one which, uh, which resulted in the displacement of millions of people from their lands as these huge mining companies and infrastructure projects came up, and the other demonizing Muslims, uh, referring to them as ter terrorists and jihadis and so on. And, and all of that has now culminated in a situation. And of course, from uh, 1947 onwards, there's been Kashmir, which was actually included in India by an instrument of accession by the Hindu king of Kashmir, who ruled over predominantly Muslim subjects, and who was even then contested. There was a, a freedom movement, which then became a militant armed struggle in the 90s. And today, all of this has kind of boiled over into a situation of more or less open fascism, open 
dispossession. Each institution of democracy has been hollowed out. It's been a process, but now it's come to the boil. And, uh, you know, even just like in the US, you know, the, the election machinery itself is kind of compromised. Not yet there, but here completely. So I don't know. It's a long explanation to a yeah, short well, question. No, thank you. That That's actually, that's an incredibly thorough <laughs> explanation, actually. Thank you so much for giving it to us. I, well, I'm, I'm curious, like, in terms of day-to-day life for you right now, at this boiling point, what is it like? Well, you know, uh, just before uh, the coronavirus crisis hit us, uh, the, the government of India had passed, let's say on August 5th of 2019, it stripped Kashmir of its uh, status as a state and it divided it up into uh, two, well, a union territory and a state and basically put that population of 7 million people under a rolling curfew. It cut off the internet, it cut off phones. And that process is still more or less like that. You know, there's no curfew now, but people don't have access to uh, an internet of any reasonable speed. It's like a kind of mass modern version of a human rights violation that is crazy. But that was in August. And then in December, it passed a bill, which was an openly anti-Muslim citizenship bill. And it declared that there would be a national register of citizens where citizens, all citizens would be required to produce a set of sort of quote unquote legacy papers to prove their citizenship, something that had only been done before uh, in Germany, you know, in the, in uh, the Nazis. And so there was a massive protest. Millions of people came out on the streets, Muslims as well as people who believed in a secular India and who were defending the constitution. It ended up with a massacre in Delhi in uh, February, end of February, just when Donald Trump was visiting, actually. So now now the situation, and then Corona hit, you know, and there was this lockdown announced with four hours notice, which resulted in 10 million working class people having to walk thousands of kilometers home because they had no money, nowhere to stay, no work, no food. So, and now the Indian economy has shrunk by minus 23%. But in the midst of all this and the lockdown, the repression was just rampant. So today, if you ask me how life is for me, let me just tell you that like literally three minutes from the house, my my flat in the one of the most notorious police stations in the city, uh, friends of mine are being held, are being interrogated. Hundreds of pe- Muslims are being uh, arrested for the massacre of Muslims, for the burning of Muslim mosques and shrines in Northeast Delhi. So it's a it's a kind of uh, situation where, you know, coronavirus is out of control. Thousands of farmers are on the streets because just yesterday, new legislation was bought changing the agricultural sector into a sort of corporate 
business. Question hour in parliament has been suspended. So, you know, life is very, very unpredictable right now. Arundhati, you, you write a couple of times, and, and in one essay in particular, about uh, Trump's visit uh, to India, um, which was kind of lauded in the media, and also obviously was a, a big point of celebration for um, Modi and, and his government. And I'm wondering, given that both of them uh, as leaders have this kind of fascist totalitarian you know, streak in them, one maybe somewhat more successfully realized as of yet um, than, than the other, uh, is Trump kind of seen as an ally um, in India? Um, and do you, you know, how do you think if Trump is reelected in, in the States, how that might change kind of the dynamics of, of politics there? Oh, I think he's seen more than just an ally. You know, Modi, when I think it was in November, he was in uh, Texas and there was this right. howdy Modi event with hundreds of thousands of people. Then Trump came to India for the Namaste Trump event, you know, where which was right off. I mean, Corona had already begun making inroads and there were he was promised a million person rally. And of course, that place. Uh, Gujarat became a, a, a huge super spreader center of Corona, probably mm-hmm. uh, because of that or partly because of that. But uh, Modi and Trump are, are, as I said, more than allies. Although, uh, you know, Modi's kind of fascist machinery has been put in place. I mean, the RSS has hundreds of thousands of stormtroopers and I use that word advisedly, a sort of armed militia. It has penetrated every uh, organization in India in a very, very organized way. So if, you know, if Trump is reelected, one of the things that I don't know how cognizant the world is about this, but a very, very dangerous development is that after the, the statehood of Kashmir was stripped on the 5th of August, you know, the former state of Jammu and Kashmir is now divided between Pakistan, India, and a portion of it is in China. So the Home Ministry said, we're going to take back Aksai Chin. We're going to take back the Pakistan-occupied, as they call it, territory of Kashmir, and so on. And there was a lot of belligerence. And now uh, on the eastern border of Ladakh, the Chinese army and the Indian army are standing face to face. Uh, there's already been pretty serious, you know, conflict and the possibility of war. So yeah. these 40,000 or 50,000 troops are literally in some places separated by 500 meters. Uh, these are three nuclear powers now. So whatever happens, whether or not there's a war, India, which has, uh, you know, a minus 23 percent GDP growth is now going to have to have a battle-ready army on a 3,000, almost 3,000-kilometer 3, border with China at an altitude, very high-altitude warfare. So it's going to bleed, and they hope that, I, I mean, stupidly hope that America is going to come to their rescue. Mm. And I'm like, really, like, America rescued the Kurds and the Afghans and the... 
Syrians, you know, mm-hmm. so, or those South Vietnamese, which kind of rescue are you waiting for? But yeah. uh, <laughs> so, so you know, the the if Trump loses, still I don't think that, you know, I think there'll be new ways in which Biden will cozy up to India, only mm. if only if the Indian economy kind of gets itself out of this ditch and India presents itself as a quote-unquote market. You know, otherwise, uh, no one's going to care. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Arundhati Roy about her new collection, Azadi, Freedom, Fascism, Fiction. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We're back with Yah Jesse, author of Transcendent Kingdom, who is going to offer us this week's book recommendation. Yah, what book are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend the excellent book, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments by Sadia Hartman. And it came out in 2019, um, but I only just read it earlier this year after a good friend of mine, the performance artist and poet Alok Badmenin, recommended it to me. Um, it's a book that attempts to kind of recreate or resurrect the lives of a group of women who lived in New York and Philadelphia in the early 19th century by using the public record. Uh, so things like their police reports or letters to loved ones or uh, notes from sociologists who were doing studies um, and she uses all of these records in order to, to try to fill in the blanks and recreate the lives. I found it to be such a radical, rigorous, lyrical, and deeply attentive book. And I really loved it. I am so glad that you're recommending it. Sadia Hartman's work is fantastic. And the, yeah. the kind of very path-breaking methodology that she uses there, which I think, if I'm remembering right, she calls critical fabulation. Yeah, that's um, right. Is a really fascinating way to grapple with histories of people for whom we don't have history in many cases, right? Obviously, uh, Hartman's critical fabulation approach has been taken up in in really productive ways in queer theory, in um, global Black studies, you were recommended this book by Alok Vaid Manan, whose, whose work is also fabulous, um, yeah. and folks should definitely check that out. But can you, can you talk a little bit about how maybe you approach something like critical fabulation? Like, is this useful as a resource to you as a fiction writer? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think it's kind of a cousin to the kind of work that I try to do in fiction, particularly the historical fiction of a book like Homegoing, where you recognize that there are groups of people who have had their stories written for them in ways that are really harmful um, Mm -hmm. and in ways that have kind of taken away their agency when, of course, they had agency even within their, their difficult circumstances. And so I think it is a book that will change the way that I think about research, change the way that I, I think about that question of, of resurrection from texts that are 
harmful or or are from the perspective of the majority at the at the expense of the marginalized. Wonderful. Can you give us the title and the author's name one more time? Sure. It's called Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments by Sadia Hartman. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Ya Jesse, author most recently of Transcendent Kingdom. Thank you so much. Thank you. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Arundhati Roy, author of Azadi. And Arundhati, I mean, I think this gets a, a bit to your point about the pandemic as a portal, which is uh, to kind of another world, right? So this inflection point. And I, I want to get a sense from you, if you can share with our listeners, like how you see the virus as a portal, and, you know, not that any of us really can know in the midst of the royal, right, but where you see things headed, and also how useful things, I mean, this strikes me a lot in the present, is how useful something like a pandemic is to fascist governments. Well, uh, you know, I I wrote this uh, essay, which is, of course, uh, the last essay in Azadi, Uh, called The Pandemic is a Portal, which was published in the Financial Times. And in that essay, I I wrote about how really the pandemic is like an X-ray or an autopsy, I mean, if you Mm -hmm. want to be macabre, but about how it exposes really how our societies work, how it, uh, it was like a chemical experiment in India when Modi called the lockdown announcing it as though he was the prime minister of Spain or something, you know, come out onto your balconies and bang your pots and pans. And in India, a lockdown which is supposed to enforce social distancing actually enforces physical compression because that's how people are squashed into their slums and shanty colonies and so on. And so the virus is just completely out of control over here right now. But when I said it was a portal, what happened is that many people took took three paragraphs of that essay and sort of made it wear bell bottoms and hippie clothes and walk around like it was some, you know, uh, LSD trip, like it's a portal. <laughs> <But> <laughs> what I was saying is here is an, an opportunity for us to think because there is a rupture between Mm -hmm. the past and the present? And are we going to drag the carcasses of all our mistakes through this portal? Well, according to fascist and right-wing and authoritarian governments, the answer is clearly yes, Mm -hmm. because it has resulted in more surveillance, more data collection, more privatization, more free market, more assault on the environment, you know, and so on. But in fact, what we as people who resist that ought to be able to see is that certainly in India, I see it so clearly, you know, that we are a society just like the U.S. is a society whose economics is built on slavery and stolen land. India is a society whose whole uh, structure is held together by the hierarchy the hierarchy of caste. We have lived with a kind of caste apartheid. But now, because of the pandemic, you're seeing a kind of class apartheid where the working class body is seen 
as a biohazardous body. And therefore, yeah. it, there must be a distance between, let's say, the walking classes and the flying classes and an attempt to try and structure things so that those biohazardous bodies are either sealed off away from, from, the, from the upper classes and those bodies are required less and less to labor because we're going to look at ways of mechanizing things and therefore you will come to that fascist idea of surplus people. And that is the danger. And that is why I said it's a portal and it requires some serious thought and some serious battles for us to fight. In that context, I, I want to return a little bit to your, your career as a writer and your beginning as a novelist. I mean, that's actually not what you studied at all. You studied architecture and, and you were in films too and wrote screenplays. But, you know, your first major book, God of Small Things, is a novel. And I wonder how you think of your work as a novelist and as an essayist. Do those two things go hand in hand? Do they uh, naturally they, sort of fit together? To me, they do, you know, and uh, again, one of the themes of, of Azadi as a book is that path that I have walked as a writer of fiction and as an essayist and a nonfiction essayist. Yeah. And for me, I, I actually can't imagine myself doing one and not the other because, mm. because you know, the, the essays are the ways in which I directly weld myself or dive into the streams of argument and public life and resistance and walking in the forest with the gorillas or going to Kashmir. And often... Because of those public positions that I've taken, they are my invitation into places in India where nobody would be invited. Mm. And, and then the fiction writer in me is, is smuggled through those portals, you know. Okay. And, and, I, and I then become like this, I don't know, like the sedimentary rock with layers and layers of experience of exchanges of holding in trust things that people writers would not be normally trusted with because you know these conflicts are deadly and uh, the price that people pay are huge so one is the key to the other you know mm. both mm -hmm. bo bo both things uh, walk together and i find it hard to to see why people actually have such a difficulty in understanding that because to me even the essays are literary enterprises and the novels are political as political as any of the essays you know so yeah, yeah they, they belong together for sure speaking of fiction i mean one of the i i know that i keep pulling us back towards fascism in this discussion but you know that is one of the major themes it occurs to me that, and I doubt that they would ever say this because there's such a, a demand that the fiction that they propose is actually reality, but fascism, it strikes me, is its own fiction, right? It has, um, 
it's part of its appeal. Um, and I guess I'm thinking also particularly in a state United States context is that it, it gives people like QAnon, all these conspiracy theories, right? Um, it, it gives people a story to participate in. And it's also primarily, uh, especially, I, I think actually in both Indian and, and United States context, it's a fiction about the nation, right? This kind of great romance of the nation is this unimpeachable, kind of always victorious, always good kind of actor. And I just wonder how you think about that, about kind of the appeal of totalitarianism as creating a kind of national fiction, a story in which like a desperate kind of people want to participate in, even as they see and can witness with their own eyes the reality that it's either false or its proposed solutions are not really solutions and not working? Well, actually, if you look at things through a very long lens, you know, what is fiction? Fiction and fact are not necessarily two opposites, right? Mm. So every human society, every human religion, every agglomeration of human beings, whether as a tribe or whether as a state or whether as a nation or whether as a football team or a cricket team, whatever, they make their own story. And then Mm -hmm. the group of people that believe in that story become that community. Now, in terms of uh, fascism, there is there are peculiarities to that story, you know, mm-hmm. which separate from the fiction that uh, liberals believe in, or Marxists believe in, or capitalists believe in. You know? <laughs> but I'm saying the fiction is not necessarily not factual, but it's a interpretation of how you see the world, you know. And so, certainly, I mean, in America, you have people who. Now you know that fake, I mean, then there is, that's a separate thing from the fact that, of course, there are facts, and of course, there is truth, you know, of, uh, so I'm just objecting to the word fiction as non-factual or non-true, you know, fair enough. Fic- <laughs> fair fiction, enough. <laughs> fiction is truth, but then there is fantasy, and fantasy of and fascism is for a great part built on fantasy and fake mm-hmm. news, right? And as we know today, fake news travels much faster than real news. In India, the Hindu nationalists, for example, have created for themselves a completely spurious history based on the victimhood of Hindus and so on, mm. forgetting, for example, the caste system, which is based on each caste victimizing the one below it, you know? So you have to see this great tussle for the story that people cling to in order to assert their power. It doesn't matter. They know it's not true, but it doesn't matter to them, you know? So here... Wait, you mean it doesn't matter to them because the goal is the story that gets you power? Yes. Okay. So it's not fiction, it's just falsehood, right? Mm-hmm. Because fiction is a beautiful thing. That's true. Yes. <laughs> we, yeah, I think we would all agree that that is true. And you're right, this distinction or between... Or it could be a beautiful thing. Right, <laughs> fiction and fantasy. 
falsehood. Um, Let's just call it straight out falsehood. Falsehood. You know? um, so then in this sense, I mean, how do you see, to kind of tie an end on, on this part of it, is how do you see writing as a kind of action against this? Like how, how does writing work for you in, in that way? Well, for me uh, personally, I think, you know, uh, well, much of Azadi is about that, you know, mm-hmm. and about how when one of the one of the fundamental principles of fascism is a crude simplification, right? So in this incredibly complex country like India that come at you with one country, one language, one religion, one tax, one army, one story, you know? And to me, the fiction writer, I say, oh no, you know, if novels shouldn't have enemies, but if I had an enemy, it would be that, one country, one religion, one language. And so you present them barreling down that idiotic highway with this complex universe, with this beehive, with this, uh, with this wonderful celebration of all that is complex about us, and say, sorry, but what you're saying just shrinks this into a little, little ball of garbage, you know. So that is the complexity. To me, is the militancy of of the fiction writer's response to fascism. And sort of on this on the subject, you, you discuss what you call the project of unseeing. Yes. I, I think it's a quite a lovely term. Would you, I mean, we've talked around this a little bit, but would you say, would you say what that means? What is the project of unseeing? Well, I actually first used it in this uh, essay I wrote called The Doctor and the Saint, which is about uh, the uh, conflict between uh, Gandhi and his most uh, articulate, intelligent, and brilliant detractor, Dr. Ambedkar, who was a Dalit, uh, then known as untouchable. And in this essay, well, it's a kind of book-length essay, I spoke about how caste is the engine that drives modern India politically, socially, and economically. And yet, partly because all the sort of um, organs of democracy and speech are really colonized by people who are uh, mostly belonging to the dominant castes. Even the intellectuals on the left, brilliant as they are, have sort of elided the old idea of caste, you know, when they write. Even when, for example, the God of Small Things came out, initially there was, a, you know, obviously criminal cases and so on filed against me. Uh, and those were basically affronted by by the narrative of caste in that book. But when it won the Booker Prize, people wanted to just forget about it. So they said, oh, it's a beautiful book about children. It's such lovely language. And they just tried to pretend that caste was not there, you know? And this is true of a lot of academic, intellectual, cultural work. I mean, you'll hardly see any mention of caste in Bollywood cinema. You'll hardly see any mention of caste 
unless it's a specialized subject, you know, academics have tended to avoid it until quite recently. Now, you know, work is being done, a lot of work is being done, but earlier. And then I, I talked about how everyone in the world, whatever they know about India's freedom struggle and Gandhi, they know from Attenborough's film, Gandhi. Yeah. But <laughs> Gandhi's greatest detractor, Ambedkar, just wasn't there in the film, you know? So this is what I call the project of unseeing. Like we practice a kind of apartheid in India, and yet we manage to avoid the gaze of the rest of the world because of this project of unseeing. It's harder to decipher for people from the outside, you know? But that's what I meant. As we kind of wrap up here, I'm wondering, one is like how we kind of fight back. You know, one of the things that, and I've been thinking about this a lot in dialogue with others, and certainly in in reading your book, particularly the kind of uh, intimations of an ending, that chapter. Is this a moment in which democracy as a kind of set of reformist legislative institutions is kind of failing us in a global way? You know, is, is it t- like, I, I guess, let me just put it more simply, kind of how do you see the, the process of fighting back against encroaching fascism and totalitarianism, not only in India, obviously, but in a much, as you point out multiple times in the book too, in a much more global scale, you know, what does it take? And do you see, I hate to use such a a cheesy phrase, but do you see a, a hope for a future or a kind of fatalism or something in between? Well, I uh, actually, it must have been 10 years ago that I wrote an essay called uh, Democracy's Failing Light. You know, I said, what do you do when democracy has been used up? Like when all of its institutions have been hollowed out and when it democracy has come to be fused with the idea of profit and the free market. And and that was like prior to the emergence of fascism. That was preparing the ground for it 10 years ago, you know. Okay. Now now we are at a very different phase. And I I I have to tell you that I don't have the answer clearly because what I see here in India is that because the media has unlike in the US the media here has been entirely taken over. So you have like 400 TV channels just spewing hatred all the time, hatred against Muslims, calling them, mm. calling for Corona Jihad. And, you know, just it's just like, uh, like the Nazis used typhus to stigmatize Jews like that. Okay. But more and more. And then I think sometimes... What is it that makes people like it's not just Muslims who are suffering or communists who are suffering or Christians who are suffering here. Even the people who support this regime are suffering terribly. They are watching everything, you know, demonetization, the goods and services tax, the lockdown. Everybody is broken, you know, and still they say, that, uh, you know, India is a Hindu country and Modi will save it for Hindus. So people are willing to watch themselves being destroyed. So, you know, the left doesn't have this leftist rationalism doesn't explain that. You know, it's a spiritual, psychic, psychological explanation that we need. And right Mm. now, from being someone who for 20 years has been 
more or less warning about this. Now I feel like we're facing this huge tidal wave that has risen up from the ocean. And all we can do is to just put our tent pegs down and and hope that it will just, this wave will just crash and then something else will come, you know? But mm. I don't know how you can, like all the huge mass movements like the Arab Spring or what happened here with the anti-citizenship law protests, you know, even the Black Lives Matter movement in the US, I I can see that Trump is using it to polarize and to yes. make people more and more frightened and uh, arm themselves. And, you know, so there's a sort of, whatever you do, the logic goes down in the account books of furthering polarization and fascism. So mm. um, I think we just have to continue doing what we do and knowing that this will, I mean, you know, we have to look at a scale of time which is just beyond our own immediate life cycle and know that it will fail. And when it fails, the stories that we tell had better remain standing, you know? That seems like a beautiful place to end um, on a hopeful note. Thank you so much, Arundhati, for talking to us. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. We've been talking to Arundhati Roy. Her latest book is a collection of essays. It's called Azadi Freedom Fascism Fiction. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotton. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz.